Well, when I was growing up, there was a sports show every uh, Saturday afternoon called The Wide World of Sports. If you're probably over 40, you remember it. But they had one refrain that was said over and over every time the show was introduced. It was a show about the, the sporting events from around the world. And it was the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And it would show the thrill of victory, perhaps a runner crossing a finish line or a racer passing another right before the finish line. The thrill of victory and then the agony of defeat. And they had some horrific scenes of a, of a biker just toppling over half a dozen times or a skier coming down the high jump and falling at the bottom and just being propelled into the air, into the crowd, bouncing on the earth, just thinking he'll never walk again, that this thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And it really is a picture, if you will, of discipleship. The nature of discipleship has this great thrill of victory as we advance from glory to glory, but there is oftentimes this defeat and suffering and loss. Now, you know, we've been through this gospel of Matthew now for a while, and if you remember, the outline's very clear. In the first four chapters, Matthew is trying to hold up the sign it is the glory of Christ our King. That, that's the idea of the whole gospel. In the first four chapters, he's really talking about the identity of the King, being unique and being glorious. And then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, it's the teaching of the King. And then in chapters 8, really probably through 10 or 11, it's the power of the King, and we saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And then really 12 to about 16, you see opposition to the King. You see the Pharisees and the people coming against and rejecting the message. Well, now we're in chapters 17 to 20, and it's really going to be about the discipleship of the king. In other words, he's going to intensify the training of these disciples. And we're going to see in this section a lot of advances and a lot of retreats. We're going to see some successes in what it means to be a disciple, but we're also going to see some defeats, the agony of defeat. And that's what we're going to see today, in fact. This agony of defeat. They failed. These disciples failed. But out of the failure is going to come a picture of God and a key to our vital, effective discipleship. It's going to be about the nature of faith, about the disciple has to believe that, that faith is the key and necessary ingredient for us to walk faithfully and joy-filledly and powerfully, effectually, before God. Faith is essential. It's absolutely essential. And when I speak about faith, I'm talking about laying hold of God, his power and his promises. Laying a hold of God. So this is really about how can we be effective disciples? Faith is the key and necessary agreement. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 17. I'm going to look at this in three chunks. Matthew 17, verse 14. We'll read that through 20. And we're going to look at the context of discipleship. We're going to see this scene that we're going to find ourselves in. And then the second point I'm going to make is about an example of failure. Here's what it looks like to fail. And what do we do? And then thirdly, what is the key to coming out of defeat into victory? So I'll read 14 through 20. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on me. For he is an epileptic and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. 
And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Really incredible, fantastic little passage of Scripture. Let me just set the scene for you. Let me set the context. Remember where Jesus has been. In the first 13 verses, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. So like Moses. So think back in Exodus. Moses is on the mountain. He's experiencing the glory of God. He hears the voice of God. And he comes down and he finds just the rebellion of the people. I mean, the juxtaposition between the glory of God and the sin of man could not be any more clearly stated. But then we have this passage. Jesus has been on the mountain. His glory has been displayed. I mean, the voice of God expressed his full and complete pleasure in Jesus. God is supremely pleased in Christ. He spoke that from the cloud. So they're up there in glory. They're experiencing God in all of its fullness. Then they come down from the mountain And what do they find? They find this situation here. Now, I'm going to refer to Mark's gospel a bit in this sermon because in Mark chapter 9, it has a much fuller explanation of this. But I don't want to lose Matthew's focus. Matthew is focusing more on the failure of the disciples. Mark's gospel tends to focus more on the faith of the Father. So I'm going to be dipping in and out of Mark's gospel. And Mark informs us that a crowd was quite upset. There was a lot of turbulence in the crowd. Why? Because the scribes and the Pharisees were there, and they were arguing with the disciples who couldn't heal the boy. And so Jesus walks up to this big commotion, and a a man, the father, comes out of the crowd and comes right to Jesus and begins to plead for his son. Now Luke's gospel tells us it's his only son. And this, this boy is in a terrible situation, being traumatized. Now, just think for a minute what this boy is going through. Much more description is given in, in Mark and Luke. He would throw himself down, we learn, into the fire, into the water, thereby trying to destroy himself. He would have convulsions, froth at the mouth. It's a terrible scene. If you've ever seen an epileptic fit, it is very, very frightening to see. And so this man, and you can imagine It's his only son. You don't have to be a parent. You can be an uncle. You can be an aunt. And you feel the weight. This is my only son. Let me think about it. He's the one that's going to get everything. All the hopes and the dreams of the parents are on the son. When the parents get old, it's the son who's going to take care of them. It's his only son. And and here he is. He cannot even live by himself. I mean, can you imagine? Your heart's not pulled. What will this family do? the hopelessness, the suffering. And I, I want you to sense the weightiness of this situation here. This is a real-life family in a real-life crisis that is quite significant. And so when he goes and pleads before Jesus, you know he's pleading. I mean, you know he's begging. And we hear that he explains that his boy is an epileptic. Now, Interesting, that word actually, or literally, I should say, means like moonstruck. 
In other words, the ancients used to think that the movement of the moon, the goddess of the moon even, would cause illnesses on people. This is why the KJV, if you read a King James Version, they'll translate this lunatic, luna, lunar. You know, it has to do with the moon. And, and Mark makes the picture even bleaker. Not only is he an epileptic with these fits and seizures, but he's also deaf. He cannot hear, and he also cannot speak. So, I mean, you can just feel the weightiness of the situation. But interestingly, Jesus, in each of the Gospels, speaks to casting out a demon. So what is it? Is it a demonization or is it epilepsy? Well, we're not told. We don't know what the relationship is. Is, is perhaps the demonization resulting in fits of epilepsy? Well, possibly. Perhaps he is an epileptic. And, and the demonic power is just exacerbating it. What we do know for sure is that Satan wants to destroy this image bearer. Just throwing him into the fire, throwing him into the water. Why? He can't contain himself. And in the fire, he'll burn to death. In the water, he can drown. So you can just feel the hopelessness of the situation. It's, it's really much more uh, than just the situation. This, if you will, is kind of a metaphor for life. I, I mean, it's kind of a picture of what we have, especially when you look at it in connection with the Mount of Transfiguration, this is God and his glory and holiness and joy. And this is our world. This is our world. I mean, there's a massive hopelessness. The boy can't do anything. The father can't do anything to bring about change. I mean, the scribes didn't. The people couldn't. I mean, there was nothing to be done. You see this small microcosm of the world repeated a million times over throughout the ages where... The world is under the control of darkness. I mean, it is. What kind of change can we bring? I mean, does anyone here think that the world is as good as it gets? I mean, do you think that everything's fine with the world just as it is? I mean, don't we all want things to change? Don't we all want things to get better? When you look at the last century, for example, you know, all this talk about change, You look at the last century, you have totalitarianism, you have Nazism, you have communism, now you have Islamism of ISIS. I mean, every generation. I mean, that's why you don't see old revolutionaries. They're young. Idealists, they're young. Why? They haven't lived long enough to see that things from our own ability cannot change. They can't change. We may be changing technologically. There's a a, a book that has a title uh, that's called The Progress Paradox. And and in this book, research is done regarding all the different advances in Western society that have taken place. And yet the factor of joy among people is less than what it was in prior generations, in spite of all these changes. And, And this is just looking at it at a macro level. On a micro level, look at your own life. How easy is change for you? I mean, how easy is it? I mean, you struggle with anger, bitterness, lust, pornography, food, other addictions. How easy is it for you to change? You've done the clinched fest. I'm going to renew myself. You've done the New Year's resolution. You've done all that stuff. But what change has it brought? This is a picture of our world. This is what I want you to see. This is the context of where we live. But enter Jesus You see this man go up to Jesus. He's out of options now. 
God is going to redeem even the brokenness of this world by drawing us to his son. He's out of options and he goes to Jesus and he pleads for mercy. Now his faith isn't solid. It's not secure. It's not developed and deepened. It's a mixed faith. We know this from the dialogue in chapter 9 of Mark. He goes up to Jesus in Mark chapter 9 and he says, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, kind of like whatever you got, you know, reach down deep in your pockets, whatever you got for me, if you can do anything. And Jesus says, if you can do anything? I mean, do you know who I am? Do you understand the power and the glory? Don't forget about chapter 17, 1 to 13. Do you have any idea? And the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. I love the honesty of this man. I love the mustard seed faith he has. Yeah, I believe, but help my unbelief. The mixture, I love it. And of course, Jesus heals him, heals the boy, changes the whole direction of this family's life because they came to Jesus. Only Jesus can change our life. Only the power of the gospel worked in us through the Holy Spirit can change us. That's all. It's the only hope we have for change. Folks, if you've lived long enough, just look at all the isms that we've already seen through. If you're not a Christian here, I would just encourage you to consider this. Just consider how tired you are of the same. When you look at the nihilism of ISIS, the absolute intent on destruction, that's humanity. And, And if you're tired of that, and you're tired of your own attempted change, I would appeal to you to consider the glory of Christ, to think through the message. Jesus has come to change this. Do you realize this miracle of this family was revolutionary in their lives, but the boy died later. See, all the signs and the miracles of Jesus Christ were just getting us to look forward to that time of fullness where everything will be made right. But Jesus, through his cross and his resurrection, has brought about a change, a change that we don't see its fullness yet, but we have a foretaste of it, this change that is coming. That's what the Christian is always heavenward. He's always looking for. For the Christian to die is gain. It's not leaving the party early. It's gain. That's what we see here. And so if you're a Christian here, you're rejoicing with me. You're rejoicing that this is what Jesus has done. He's taken the ugliness and the blackness of this context, and he's changed it for us. We can rejoice with him. And this is the context we do our discipleship. Jesus is the one that said, go into all the world. Go into this bleak, dark world with the gospel, baptizing and teaching them all that I've commanded you. So Christian, we are rejoicing people. We are so thankful to God that he would bring one that could, and only one, only one Jesus, that could transform the brokenness of this world into something great and glorious. And that's why I love the transfiguration preceding this, because that was a snapshot of what we have. That's a snapshot of all that is coming. And so it's that to which we look, and it's that joy that we have. Okay, so that's the context here. The context of, this is this is the context in which the disciples... Well, let's look at their... Secondly, let's look at their failure now. Let's look at their failure. Because the failure is obvious. The man comes up to him, and he says this. He says, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Oh, this is terrible news. This is terrible news. Why? Because the disciples had been called to do this type of work. 
They had been authorized to do it. Jesus had taught them this. If you remember back in Mark chapter 3, in the calling of the disciples, we read these words, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. They had the authority to do it. And then not only that, but in Mark chapter 6, they had actually done it. In Mark 6 we read, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So what happened? I mean, what, what happened? I mean, this is why you see the frustration of Jesus. This is why you see the inquisitiveness of the disciples when they ask, hey, what happened? Why couldn't we throw them out? They had done it, and then they weren't able to do it. Very strange. This is why Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. Oh, faithless and perverse generation. Is he talking about the scribes and the people that rejected his message? Well, in part, but I think he was talking about the disciples because later on he speaks to their issue of faith. He's saying, oh, faithless. Now, I want you to hear, if you will, the suffering in the voice of the Savior when he says, how long am I to be with you? How long must I bear with you? Just that sanctified frustration of you have been authorized, you've been gifted, you've been empowered, you know who I am, and you haven't done it. It's, they failed. I'm thankful that he rescues us in our failure. And we see this when he says, bring him here to me. Bring him here to me. I I want to think that the tone of the Savior at that point kind of changed. It is what it is at this point. He says, bring him here to me. I'm going to rescue your faith again. Bring him to me. And do you notice what Jesus does? Notice with me the absolute ease. He brings the boy. He rebukes the demon. demon, Demon flees. And the boy's healed instantly. Instantly. Now just think for a minute. This boy is healed instantly. So you're this family. The boy, he could never talk. He couldn't say, thank you. I love you. I need help. You know, I always loved it when the kids were able to speak because they could tell me what was wrong rather than me trying to figure it out on my own, never being able to figure it out very well. He could now speak. He couldn't hear before. He couldn't hear his mother say, I love you. He could never hear that, but now he can. And and now he can have friends. Why? He couldn't have friends before. You couldn't leave him out of his sight. I mean, there's fires burning all over the place. There's fires burning in in Israel because there's no electricity. You always had to have a fire going, so you couldn't leave him out of his sight. Otherwise, he could fall into the fire or he could fall into the water. And, And, you know, whenever a person has epilepsy, you can tend to be on nerve because you're waiting. You never know when it comes. And when it comes, it's fast and it's furious and it's frightening. And all of a sudden, no more of that. You can have friendships. You can let the boy go play with his friends. You don't have to always have a set of eyes on him. Can you imagine the joy that came to this family? That's the joy that Christ brings. That freedom, that healing, that salvation. And that's what they're experiencing because of the power of Christ. But notice also, not just the contrast in the boy's life, look at the demons for a minute. Mark's Gospel tells us that the demon shrieked. Now what you do when you shriek is that you are terrified, or there's a knife being thrust into your back, but you are terrified. These demons who wouldn't give the disciples the time of day, they know who they're dealing with. It's ironic often how the disciples don't see the glory of Christ as it's shrouded by his flesh, but they know who Jesus is. And the disciples, oftentimes failing to obey Jesus, the demons obey Jesus immediately. 
They never came back. This boy was never troubled again. I want you to see the absolute radiant power, that face shining in all of its strength in chapter 17. The demon saw it. Can you imagine the terror? Can you just, if, if you wonder, you can even go later to Revelation chapter 1, and you see John, the disciple, whom Jesus loved, when he saw Jesus Christ, you know what his response was? Oh, great to see you again. I've missed you so bad. I've really missed you. It's great. No, he fell down as though dead. Why? Because his face was shining with strength. His voice was like the sound of thundering waters. We don't know who we're dealing with. The demons did, and they were terrified. Note the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. I want you to be mindful that in our discipleship, we're going to fail. Matthew, the writer of the gospel, was one of the nine that failed. He has the integrity to record his own failure. We can admit and own our own failure. Think about in this past week, the people that you have given up praying for, or perhaps the fear that you felt in wanting to share the gospel with somebody, but you chose not to because you didn't want to be embarrassed. Or perhaps the anger that you've kind of harbored and the bitterness that you've kind of nursed to someone rather than giving it and casting your cares upon the Lord. Think about how we've failed. And let's own it and then confess it. And allow the the cleansing grace of God to forgive us. He says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's, let's confess it. I mean, even now as you're thinking about the times that you chose sin over Jesus. Because that's really what what sin is. It's just not living by faith. It's not trusting in God. It's not holding on to his power. So let's admit we do fail. We do fail. C.S. Lewis gave great words to this in his letters. He says this, The trouble with me is a lack of faith. I have no rational ground for going back on the arguments that convince me of God's existence. But the irrational dead weight of my own skeptical habits, the spirit of the age, the cares of the day, steal away all my lively feeling of the truth. And often when I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. Mind you, I don't think so. The whole of my reasonable mind is convinced but I often feel so. We do. So let's just admit it and confess it and allow the, allow the gospel to re- return us to delight and faith. So let's be mindful about that we will fail. We will suffer the agony of defeat. But let's be thankful that Jesus rescues us. He says, bring them here to me. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus will constantly, he rescued the faith of the disciples in the boat. He, he doesn't fire us. He doesn't... He doesn't relocate us. He doesn't reassign us, but he, he re-engages us. He comes and strengthens us in the middle of our failure. That's the grace of God. Meted out not just in his justification of us, but in his pursuing of sanctification. Like in 1 Thessalonians 5 at the very end. It says, may God sanctify us through and through. And I, I've been reading that book over and over, and I'm overwhelmed with it because I often think, I don't feel sanctified through and through. But then the very next line, it's like Paul heard that, because in the very next line it says, he is faithful, he will do it till the end. Almost like to catch my, when I read the first verse, I'm like, will he really? And then the very next verse is, he's faithful, he'll do it till the end. So he rescues our faith. So think about where you have fallen in faith, and 
pick it up again. Pray for the person that you are. You were convinced there's no way God can save them. Let's pray for them by faith. Or there's some ministry opportunity that you had that you thought there's no way I can do that. They might ask me a question I don't have an answer for. Like anybody doesn't fit that role, right? But let's just say that I understand the feeling, but pick up the task. By God's grace, do it. I mean, where have you feel that you've failed in faith this week? Well, then re-engage. He wants to rescue our faith. Okay, the third point I want to make here is simply this, that the key to effective ministry, the key to effective discipleship is faith. Look with me at 19 and 20, because the disciples go to him and say, what happened? What gives? You know, and they did it privately. In one of the Gospels, it tells us probably, probably because they're embarrassed. I mean, that was a major public failure in faith right there, right? They couldn't cast the demon out. So, and probably they ask him. Now, Jesus, notice what answers Jesus does not give. So what happened? Jesus doesn't say, yeah, Satan got the upper end on you. He's really powerful in this season. He didn't say the government. The government's really bad. Government's really anti-God. The government's our problem. He didn't say, no, you're, you're in a really tough context right here, guys. You're going to take losses all the time. He doesn't use any external reason. He just says your faith is too weak. Your faith is too little. Now, what does he mean by this? I want to make sure you understand this. He says, your faith was too little. Now, my first thought would go to, well, if I had a little more, then I could have gotten the job done. If I just had a little extra power, I could have gotten the job done. But then how would we understand verse 20? Because verse 20 says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say this mount be moved to here, from here to there. So it can't mean that. I think he's speaking more about not quantity, but the quality of faith like a poverty of faith. In other words, it's a shoddy faith. It was shot through with, with mixed motives and, and laziness and perhaps not even considering these things. In other words, they, they didn't think strong on the, on the power of God. They had little confidence and reliance on God moving in this way. And why do I say that? Well, because in Mark's gospel, Jesus says this one comes out only by prayer. Well, the implications of that means they hadn't even prayed before moving in ministry. They hadn't even prayed in ministry. Well, what were they doing? I don't know. Maybe they were looking back at their past successes and think, I cast them out last time. Here's what I said. That will work again. Kind of like a magical incantation. Hocus pocus. It worked last time. It will work this time. And maybe they were, they were thinking, well, we're apostles. I mean, we have this position. We, we don't need to think about it. We're just going to move because he's designated us as apostles. Maybe they were thinking it was theirs by right. I don't know. But I was thinking how foolish that they wouldn't even pray. And then can I tell you that I was immediately convicted by the fact that I've done ministry because I've done it before and I haven't prayed. I've done the same thing. I imagine you have too. You've engaged someone with the gospel, or you've stepped out in ministry. Or, or, well, I know how to bake a pie. Baking a pie is not a big deal. I'm going to take it to a neighbor and and you don't engage in prayer. God, I need your power to do this well. And so I was guilty of the same thing. So Jesus wants to encourage us away from that. And that's why he gives us verse 20. If you have faith, he wants to encourage you to move in faith. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed. Now what's he mean by this? Well, mustard seed is like the size of the head of a pin. So he's not speaking literally, as if God wants us to rearrange his creation. 
It's, it's, a, it's a hyperbole. He's teaching us a principle that it is not the size of your faith that is fundamental to success. It's the object of your faith. It is the one to whom your faith is linked and, and anchored in. That's the issue. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, but your faith is in the greatness of God, then you're in good shape. And you can say to this mountain, be taken up and removed. But let me remind you, because a lot of prosperity preachers and a lot of word of faith preachers will take this and say, well, the mountains that were to move by faith or, you know, you have a bad boss or you have a, a tough job or you have a, a marriage that's troubled right now, perhaps, or, or you have cancer or some other sickness. And so if you just have enough faith, you can move those obstacles out of life. And I would say I think that's patently false. I think God puts obstacles in our life for his own redemptive purposes. I think what he's driving at here is not making this blank check for an easy and carefree existence. I think he's speaking about the nature of how the kingdom advances. This is in the context of ministry. So in other words, these apostles, how would they have understood it? Well, they're being tasked to take the gospel to the ends of the world. Kind of a mountain-sized task. And yet within their generation, the gospel went from Spain to India. Whoa, a mountain was moved. Or these timid, fearful men, unlearned, trained for just a few short years, were able to lay down their lives for the gospel. It's kind of a mountain to me to lay down my life for the gospel. Faith as much as a mustard seed can say to this mountain, be taken up and removed. It's in the work of the kingdom going forth. Not just macro, not just corporately, but even in our own lives. Some of us, even today, you may be struggling with issues that are preventing further sanctification. You're finding sin to be so pleasurable, and it's thwarting your increasing from glory to glory. Even faith, even a God, I believe, help my unbelief, move this out of my life. Give me the strength, give me the Give me the corporate support of the church to move this out of my life. Or maybe there's a child in your family or a parent who's not a Christian and antagonistic to the gospel. They seem like an immovable mountain to you. Just a little bit of faith. God, I'm going to share the gospel with them. Is it fearful? Yes, it is. But we're going to do it. We're going to walk by faith. Or whatever situation you're in, this idea of having faith as a mustard seed, it's just a little bit of faith in the bigness of God. That's what we're talking about here. So what we have in this story is training of the disciples. Here's the context. It's a broken world. Here's an example of failure, the agony of defeat. But look at the thrill of victory that comes out as Jesus explains to us. No, no, no. Even a little faith. We're just asking you to try a little bit. But what I want you to think about is the power of God more than the amount of faith you have. The amount of your faith is not fundamental. It's in whom your faith is linked and anchored. So what do we do with this? So let me just give you four considerations. How do we develop this? How I want to give you something practically, something practical that can help you move forward in this. The first thing I would ask you to do is examine the quality of your faith. Examine the quality of your faith. I want you to think about it. Is it shoddy? Is it shot through with mixed motives? In other words, I want you to understand. I want you to look at it, not just from a justification standpoint. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. That's one thing. If you're not a Christian, that's one thing we do. If you're a Christian, 
Examine yourself if you're in the faith. But if you're in the faith, examine the quality of your faith right now. Faith is not, and I want to say what faith is not for just a second. Faith is not simply an intellectual conviction of the truth. That's knowledge. But faith, and, 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 and faith needs that knowledge, but that is not equivalent to faith. So intellectual conviction is not faith. Faith is also not just having this confidence that God's going to do what I think he ought to do. Uh, this is how we were kind of raised in the charismatic church a little bit. If you just have faith, believing that God will do this, God's bound to do it. And it really is a way of trying to control the divine levers and turning the divine dials, you know, trying to get God to do what we want. That's not faith. And faith isn't just having a confidence and having faith. You'll often hear spiritual people say, well, you just got to have faith. I'm like, well, what good does that do? Well, faith is good. Well, why? I mean, doesn't it matter what faith is in? I can have faith the moon's made out of cheese. That doesn't do any good for me. What is faith in? It has to have an object. What faith is, is it's laying hold of God, his promises and his power and, and his promised presence with us. Faith is trusting in the words of God that God's going to do what he said he was going to do. Faith is rooted in already what God has done for us. So laying hold of faith, or faith is laying hold of God. It's it's. Checking through to make sure your faith is not weak and failing. Listen to J.C. Ryle, the English um, pastor of the 19th century. He said this. He said, um, oh, you, you missed a good one. It didn't make it on the printed page. Sorry. Oh, it was a good one. Yeah, you don't get it. Sorry. Okay. Moving on. So that's examining your faith. Okay, secondly, fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ. I mean, this is really essential. We are not a contemplative culture at all, and I'm really sorry about that. Uh, I want us to be, I want us to be a thoughtful church, a contemplative church, where you can think about Jesus Christ. You can think about his life, this perfect life lived out in such obedience and joy before the Father. This life that would just yield itself to the plan of the Father, dying for our sins. And then the power of this life being raised from the dead now, seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion. I want you to contemplate Christ, because as you contemplate Christ, it moves our discipleship out of this mechanical feel to an affectionate relationship. It develops affections for us. When you read through the Gospels, it's hard not to just love him. But you've got to read slowly and thoughtfully and considerately. And, and having affections, fixing your eyes on Jesus. You know what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author, he's begun your faith, and he's the perfecter of your faith. Or Martin Luther said this, I did write this down. Martin Luther said, faith is nothing else but a sure and steadfast looking to Christ. How often do you contemplate his glory? I mean, how often do you sit and just ponder his power that by his powerful word, the universe is held in its place? When was the last time you gave thought to that? So you have your problems lined up here, and then you go and you think about Christ at the right hand of God, the Lamb of God who has slain and with his bloody purchased men and women for God to be a, a nation of priests, to serve our God. When, when have you thought about that, contemplated that? 
Folks, I don't want you feeling guilty that you haven't done it. I want you to be excited to do it. This is how affections and joy are stirred within us over this Jesus. This is what's going to make us at the end of life not regret dying. I mean, if you don't contemplate heaven and the glory of being with God forever, how will we embrace death and say it's the door to life? So fix, examine your faith, fix your eyes on Jesus, and then persevere. We need to persevere. The whole nature of this existence is a battle. Paul said it in Ephesians 6. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and forces of wickedness and darkness. And so this idea of faith has to persevere. If you don't get your answers to prayer quickly, persevere. I mean, if you think about the mustard seed just as a kind of a picture, you know, think of how it has to persevere. All the weight of the earth is on it, and yet it has to grow through the earth, pushing against all the forces coming down. Gravity is pushing down, and the seed has to continue to grow through it all. We have to persevere through this life. We have to, we have to press on. And, and the quickest marker to determine how much I'm persevering is how quickly do I give up in prayer. So if there's an issue facing me, either in my life personally or in one of your lives, how quickly do I give up praying? How fast am I to stop? That will quickly tell me how much I'm depending upon God. And then the last thing I would say after persevering, the last thing would be exercising faith. It's not just about having faith. It's about exercising faith. You know, William Carey, the missionary, the great missionary to India from Britain, said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. If you know God is great, then do great things. So what do we do with this sermon? At a minimum, at a minimum, I would ask you to ask yourself, what, in what ways would God have me invest my life? In what ways would God have me utilize the gifts that he has given to me? And every believer here has a gift. If you're uncertain of it, seek an elder, come forward to the front. But he promises us a gift. In what ways? In other words, let's broaden our perspective as to what faith might look like in the world that God has planted you in. So faith might look like you engaging in the Fox Road Elementary Ministry. I'm not seeking to generate volunteer support here at all. Trust me, I'm not. No joke. I'm seriously trying to give you an outlet for what faith might look like. It might look like you going there and serving those people and praying for the teachers when they come up believing that God's going to use this, not simply to give them a good meal for three hours, but that God would use this act of grace to help them understand, oh, the gospel means that. Or that, at least, is a small part of a greater gospel. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's joining a care group, and you're going you're gonna to finally join a care group, you're going to upset the peacefulness of your schedule, and you're going to get involved with the lives of other people that may be a little tangled and thorny with yours, and you're going to open your lives to them. And you're going you're to allow the one and others to have their sanctifying work in your life. Maybe it's something involved in missions. You've always been tempted to maybe go to New York with some of these trips we're going on. You've always been tempted to, but you've been scared about it. Or you've always thought, well, I don't really have the time to do it. But no, faith might look like you going. You going, you seeking to go. Or it might, like, it might look like the neighbor that you've always wanted to share with, but you've just been intimidated. Or you're going to say, no, faith is going to look like I'm going to pray for 30 days for an opportunity to share the gospel, and then I'm going to speak to them about the greatness of God. And I'm just going to jump right in the pool, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to trust God. He's got to move the mountain. I have small faith. He's a big God. So those are various ways you can do it. 
So, so you see here, for our discipleship to be effective, we have to have faith. Faith has power, but the power is not in the faith. Power is in the one in whom we have faith. So let's just take a moment of time right now and um, silently reflect on this. Perhaps it leads you to conviction. Perhaps it leads you to a sense of thankfulness of how God's given you the grace to exercise faith. Uh, so let's just take a moment, and then and, um, an elder is going to close us in prayer.